and welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes With Purple, the podcast about words, about language and about the people that we meet along the way. I'm Susie Dent and with me is my co-presenter Giles Branderis, possibly the most prolific person I know in terms of how much he works and how much he actually produces. So Giles, how are you? You must be shattered, are you? You never stop. I'm in very happy form. I realise, in fact, I only realised it recently, because as you know, one of the reasons I've been running around the country is I have a, a new book out called Odd Boy Out, which is a childhood memoir, an autobiography. And happily, it's in its second week in the bestseller list. So I'm very excited. Well done. But I discovered lots of things while writing this book. And one of them was to remember an old headmaster who was 82 years of age when I met him. I was a little boy of 10. And I realized that he'd only ever said five words to me, six if you include my name, but they influenced my entire life. He said to me when I met him, I went into his study, age 10, he's age 82. He looks down at me and says, Brandreth, busy people are happy people. Uh, That's all he said to me. And uh, I think I've spent my whole life trying to be a busy person as a consequence of that. And on the whole, I've found that busy people are happy people. My wife would say, busy fool. But I think it's quite good to be busy. So I've been being very busy, which means I've been being quite happy. That is excellent. Although it is good to stop occasionally and just to to stare, isn't it? I find. I mean, I'm such a daydreamer and I live in my head a lot. So um, I think having having that balance is sometimes quite difficult to achieve. But yes, if you want something done, ask a busy person is a bit of an old adage. Isn't well, the it? only place we can live is in our heads. I don't think there's anywhere else mm. you can live. So whatever's happening to you, it's happening in your head. I think I just cogitate a bit too much. Oh, do, oh yes, you don't um, brood. Getting that balance right. I mean, I forget who it was who said that the some ancient Greek who said the unexamined life is not worth living, that you've got to actually think about what you're doing. But I, I'm quite, I have reservations about too much introspection. Looking up and looking out, I think, makes one a happier person than looking down and looking in. Being intrigued in the world around you, in science, in nature, in art, and things going on around you is more stimulating, I think, than brooding on then what's... On fallow skepsis, which is navel-gazing. Oh, is that what it's called? Uh, fallow skepsis. Yeah. Why is it called fallow skepsis? Yes, on fallow skepsis. Uh, that is just the Greek for belly button and skepsis looking. Oh. So you're just, as you say, looking looking down. Uh, but we're not talking about belly buttons today. We are talking about a subject that many purple people have asked us to uh, to cover um, in Something Rhymes With Purple. And particularly thank you to Nekil Shingardia, Andrew Steele, who is our Kathmandu correspondent, Giles, mm. um, Abirup uh, Sen and Tim Stewart. Thank you, all of you. And to many other people who've got in touch about this sub- fantastic subject, really, because we're talking about what has become known affectionately, I think, as Hinglish or Indian English as such, and this is quite a tricky term. It's been the subject of controversy because some people say that calling something Indian English implies that there's a sort of, it's just a variety. It's just a little offshoot of it rather than a sort of central language to um, millions of speakers. Um, Also, other people would say, and this is true, you know, the, the kinds of English used in India are so varied socially, geographically, that actually to be lumped together as one variety is to deny that richness. But I think for the purposes of discussion, the purple people will will know what we're talking about. For simplicity's sake, we're talking about the huge 
influence of India and its um, citizens upon the English language. I couldn't be more excited about this episode because, I don't know if you know this, but my mother was born in India. Well, actually, she was born in what is now Pakistan. She was born in Rawalpindi. Uh, and mm-hmm. she is was, I suppose, a controversial figure in that she was a daughter of the Raj, not a, um, sounds quite oh. grand, but it wasn't grand. Uh, her mother was a missionary and uh, in Edwardian times, late Victorian times, went around India on a donkey with a Bible trying to convert people in India to Christianity. My father used to say rather cynically about his mother-in-law, yes, well, she converted them while she was on the donkey in the village giving out the sweets, but then the moment she'd moved away, uh, they reverted to uh, whatever their faith had been beforehand. But this lady, Mm. my grandmother, then married a young man who was in uh, the Indian army. And the Indian army's contribution to our freedom in this country is extraordinary over the years, both during the First World War and the Second World War. There were almost as many people from the Indian army, the Indian citizens, who fought and died in Europe during the First World War as there were in the British army from Europe. So their contribution was extraordinary. And this young man, my grandfather, married my grandmother. So my mother was brought up in Pakistan, what was then India, and she never in her head left it. So my whole life really was, as a child, was imbued with her love of India. The people, the tastes, the smells. It was it was her north, her south, her east, her west. She was happy in India with Indian people. And when she was dying, aged 96, in a hospital near Brentford. She was taken from the room where she was, the the ward where she was ill, to the room where she died a few hours later by two porters, one of whom uh, she held her hand, and they chatted in Hindi. So it was rather nice that the last words she spoke were in Hindi. So yeah. this is this is fascinating. So I want to hear all about it. Tell us about how England English came to India and, and all the rest of it. Explain the background. Well, I'm going to start with India itself, because I think the name India is, is quite beautiful. So it's named after the river Indus, which flows from Tibet through Kashmir and Pakistan and into the Arabian Sea. And it's related to Hindi, obviously in Hindu. But did you know India also gave its name to indigo because that was Indian dye, which... I think it's beautiful. And actually, I have several friends whose daughters are called India. So I think it's it's very beautiful. But yes, the Indian influence on, upon English. Uh, I mean, it was introduced in a big way into India, English, in the 17th century when traders, English-speaking traders, came to the country. And I mean, if you fast forward now, after the British rule was over in the middle of the 20th century, English obviously remained in use. Um, I think it's estimated that 200,000 people claimed English as their first language and 125 million claimed it as the second language. And that is really significant because very often we kind of forget, we think that English is in the hands of native English speakers like ourselves, but actually, no, it's in the hands of those who have it as a second or a third language. And that happened a long time ago, that the importance and the number of non-native English speakers, it outgrew us a very, very long time ago. So it's important to remember that English is in their hands and not with ours. Um, So together with Hindi, English is, um, it's the official language of the Indian government, familiar to almost all people 
of India. And um, you will find it also as the language of officialdom, really, of business, of education, of administration and law, particularly. So in some ways, it's quite similar to the position in Britain after the Norman Conquest. Um, when French came flooding in, and we've spoken about this on Purple before, it became the prestige language, if you like. So it's wrapped up in all sorts of complicated history, as we know, in colonialism, in sort of some, you know, re- really sort of dark periods of history, as well as some really, really important ones in establishing what is current India. But as a language, it is absolutely beautiful. And I think it is really important to remember that it is not just an offshoot of English. It is actually a really important language in itself. So what are we calling this language? Just to be, are we calling it Hinglish or are we calling it Indian English? I think Indian English, for the purposes of our discussion, is fine, even though, as I say, you know, some people don't like it because it's a bit too monolithic and and, um, simplistic. But I think for for what we're talking about today, I think that's okay. So tell us about what was the special nature of Indian English? What makes it unique? Well, as always, what I love about the different Englishes (laughs) around the world is that they take our language and they mould it to their environment, to their culture. Obviously, they come up with their own pronunciation, so pronunciation will be significantly different. There are lots of sound differences between British English and Indian English, but also sort of new vocabulary. So one of the words that I think I've mentioned before, and it was one of the first to really strike me as being so clever and so inventive, uh, was to prepone something. So if you want to bring something forward, that is exactly how we would express it in British English. I'm preponing the meeting, I'm bringing it forward. And it's simply a kind of backwards or or forwards version of postpone, but it's just really clever. And it's in the dictionary. I try and use it sometimes. I'm going to prepone that meeting, but it's very much part of Indian English. And and, um, yeah, I just think it's incredibly clever. I've never heard that word before. Prepone means to bring forward. So if, as it were, how lovely. So if we'd planned to record our podcast at 10, you could say, can we prepone that and do it at nine? Yes. How lovely. And if I wanted to do it at 11, I'd say, can we postpone that? I love it. So prepone is to do previously what to postpone is to do later. Yeah. And etymologically, it's also completely accurate because pre means before and ponere in Latin was to put. So you're putting it before. And this is a word invented in India. It's an, an Indian English. Yeah. How intriguing. I know. And then there are just ones that just make me smile because I just, they're just I just think they're quite funny. So a nickname for somebody who has a bald head sort of encircled by hair, if you like, is called a stadium. <laughs> I just think it's really clever uh, because it's like the hair is the crowd of spectators. That's very good. Yeah. I've never heard that phrase either. So these are Indian English words that we need to get into our currency. So a stadium. So somebody like me, I'm afraid, who's got that like like monk's tonsure, you know, like, like a little ball bit in the middle. Do you have a tonsure? Well, I try to keep my head up and always face you. I don't want you to see the, my shame. You just wear headphones all the time when you uh, yeah, go out. Yeah, exactly. Or, or a little, <laughs> little woolly hat with a pom-pom on. So that's known <laughs> as a stadium when you've got hair all around the ball bit. I love it. A stadium. I love it. And I think what we would love to talk about particularly today is the influence upon British English of Indian English. So rather than just what do we do for them, it's what they have done for us. And actually, it is a huge amount. So many of the words have lost their stories, if you like, because they have been completely normalised and naturalised within British English. But we owe them to the many, many languages of India from Sanskrit to Hindi. Well, let, let's begin. Can I throw some words at you and see if you can, you've yes. got the answers? I think do lally 
is a uh, an Indian origin word. My father always loved the word doolally, and he used to say yes. it came from a place. But is that possible? Somebody who is doolally means they're a little bit, the, the mind's gone a little bit, they're a little bit odd. If you're doolally, what is the origin of doolally? Well, at the height of the crown rule uh, in India, the British Army established a military base. At, um, at, there's a, a sanatorium, actually, in Diolali, which oh. was northeast of Bombay at the time, which also doubled as a transit camp. And at this transit camp, soldiers would obviously await their boat home. So it was both a kind of medical centre, but also a place where soldiers would um, would wait. And boats would only leave really between the months of November and March because of the weather and so many waited for months and months and months under either the scorching sun, Indian sun, or the deluges of, I suppose, of the monsoon season. And they were bored. They were restless. And so they were described as going Diolali tap. So they pronounced it uh, Dulali because, as we have covered so often on Purple, as British English speakers, we're not the best at appropriating foreign words, so we kind of mangle them a little bit and they come out slightly different. So Dulali was their version of Diolali. And Tap was an Urdu word, Urdu being another incredibly influential language from India, was the word for was fever, really, or malarial fever. So Dulali Tap was the Diolali fever from the boredom, the restlessness, when you went slightly crazy, you know, from waiting for so long. So it was like camp fever. And the tap soon dropped and Diolali, aka Dulali, then slipped over from services slang into mainstream English. Great. So it was a place, Dulali. Extraordinary. Definitely was. Oh, mm. I love that one. What about juggernaut? Oh, juggernaut. Yeah. What? I mean, this is quite extraordinary, the sort of the way that this one has travelled, really, because today, I suppose, a juggernaut can be an unstoppable force. It can be a gigantic truck, which is how most of us would describe it, probably. Or I don't know if you watch X-Men, but the villain in X-Men is, is juggernaut. Anyway, it, its origin sounds very unlikely, but it involves the meeting of two vastly different cultures, I suppose. So you have to go to the Puri or Puri temple and a ritual that uh, was held there. So it was a festival, really, at which wooden forms of the gods, and this still happens, they're ceremonially placed on immense chariots and pulled through the streets by worshippers in huge processions, and thousands and thousands of people will attend these this festival or um, processions. And Yaganat, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, and all of the wonderful purple people who suggested this topic will be able to correct me, but in Sanskrit, it means Lord of the Universe. And this was the name... It was a deity really worshipped in Buddhism and Hinduism and um, often depicted as one of the, the 10 incarnations or avatars of Vishnu. Um, Vishnu being one of the three most powerful gods in the Hindu religion. So Jagannath or Yagannath in Sanskrit entered the English language in the early 19th century as colonial Britons really in India encountered this chariot and tried to make sense of what they were seeing. And, and you can read early accounts of this and they present the festival quite often in a very patronising and alarmed way as violent and foolhardy. And they record what they describe as the sacrifice of worshippers who would leap under the giant wheels of the chariot. So it became this incredibly sort of violent, barbarous, unstoppable force that would crush everything in its path. That's very much how it was depicted in sort of British accounts. 
And that dangerous image of the festival really persisted so that in Victorian Britain, a juggernaut was even used as a metaphor for the vices of alcohol or anything to which people really ruthlessly or not ruthlessly, blindly, I suppose, devoted themselves or were sacrificed. And then gradually that fell away. And, you know, the name of the Indian deity was long forgotten by this point, but Juggernaut took on the sense of this huge force and hence this huge vehicle, which kind of looks back to the the very origins of the expression. So quite the story. And are all these words that now are part of British English, do they mostly date from the Victorian heyday of what was, in those days, the British Empire, when, for example, Queen Victoria, one of the proudest moments of her life was when she became Empress of India. Not that she ever went there, but she had a huge fondness for India and for Indian people. Are these words all 19th century words, basically? That's when they took root, and they've stayed with us ever since. Yeah, I think we have to remember the enormous influence of, I mean, it was the same during the First World War and the Second World War, of soldiers returning Uh, home with the language that they have acquired when they're sort of posted or working overseas. Um, So give us some, I'm loving, I love prepone. Uh, Doolally, I'm clear about now, a juggernaut, extraordinary. Blighty, actually, they talked about, people used to talk about Britain as being blighty. Is that an Indian word in origin? It is, yes. So that is from Urdu, again, Bilayati, I think, which meant foreign or Uh European. So it was always something that was over there. And because British soldiers serving in India saw the homeland is so far away in a very nostalgic way, you know, many of them longed to return, they adopted this European foreign idea of something far away and um, appropriated themselves. And during the First World War, some soldiers hoped for what was called a blighty one. And a blighty one was a wound that was not too bad, but it was bad enough to get you safe passage home. Oh, that's clever. Oh, there are just so many. Um, So loot, loot has its origins in the experience of the British, I suppose, in um, India. And soldiers picked it up, meaning valuables plundered from an enemy. And they picked that up from their Hindi-speaking counterparts. So it goes back to a word meaning to rob. And that's from Sanskrit. So Sanskrit, again, that's the ancient language, I suppose predominantly northern India. So that's where loot comes from. And I suppose that's quite closely related, semantically anyway, to thug, because in the early 19th century, a thug was a member of an organisation of professional robbers or assassins in India who strangled their victims. It was all very barbaric. Were they called, th- why do I think of the word thuggy? They were known as thuggies. Have I imagined that? Oh, yeah. No, I think thuggy is in the dictionary, actually. I've got the dictionary here, as ever. It is robbery and murder formerly practiced in India by members of an organisation known as the thugs in accordance with their ritual. So that thuggy was actually the consequent, well, that was basically what they perpetrated. Ah, they, uh, thugs commit thuggy, and if they steal stuff from you, it's loot they're taking with them. Exactly. And thug goes back to the Hindi thug, meaning a swindler or a thief. And then you get the first British thugs in 1830s in Glasgow. Um, I make no comment there. <laughs> um, I do. I genuinely love Glasgow, so I'm not being horrible there. But that, that was the first record of it. Well, a lot of these words, like these words here, are grim ones. But many of the words have a kind of spiritual commentation. You mentioned the Indian gods. Where does nirvana come from? Um, well, that's from Buddhism, really. And it's literally described, well, literally describes, but it defines a transcendent state. So this state is one in which there is said to be no suffering, no sense of self, and you are 
released from everything, really. It's the final goal of Buddhism. And so we use it today to mean an idyllic state or place, if we're not making specific reference to um, Buddhism. And actually, it comes from Sanskrit and a verb meaning to blow out, to be extinguished. That's I love the idea that you're sort of earthly worries and sufferings and even kind of preoccupation with yourself are just extinguished, allowing you to focus on higher things. When you're focusing on higher things, you may repeat a mantra. Now, Mm. what is a mantra? Is that phrase I used earlier, busy people are happy people, is that my Mm. mantra or is a mantra something different? What is a mantra? No, a mantra is something that's repeated, isn't it? I think that's the idea, idea is that a mantra is, it's a bit deeper than a slogan and it is something that is repeated frequently in order to sort of embed it in your brain. But originally in Hinduism and Buddhism, it was a word or sound repeated in meditation and it was to aid your concentration in meditation. And it actually is related to one of the most ancient words that we have in any language and that's manas or man to think and that's related to mind and mentor. Oh, so many words in English. Oh, we've got to take a break. But this is such a a rich topic. We're going to put out an extended version of the podcast for our Purple Plus subscribers, people who belong to the Purple Club. So if you want more fascinating etymologies and uh, stories, uh, do go to Apple subscriptions to sign up. We're going to take a break now, then more words from Indian English. And I think I want to dress up for this. I'm going to get my pajamas. I hope you'll be wearing your dungarees, Susie. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple, where Giles was about to get dressed, thankfully. Uh, Giles, what are you going to wear? <laughs> I'm putting on my pyjamas. This is a pyjama party. Is pyjamas a- another of the words that has come to us from India? Yes, yes, yes. Um, from Urdu and from Persian, actually, as well. So the original pyjamas were more like leg coverings, and that's exactly what it means uh, literally in those languages. So pay is leg, and jama was clothing. They were sort of loose-fitting trousers, and then eventually we decided to adopt them for for our own wear. It's a little bit like mufti, actually, or mufti, as kids will call it these days. Did you ever have mufti day at school? No, I was familiar with the word mufti because of my mother being brought up in India. She always talked about, you know, are you wearing mufti? But now this is children have mufti days, which means they don't have to wear the uniform. They can wear anything they like. Is that what a mufti day is? Anything they like. Home clothes day is what we used to call it as well. Yes. And mufti is an Arabic word. And it meant um, a clerical official empowered to give rulings on matters of law. And it became used for casual or civil clothing amongst officers in the British military in India, again, the 19th century. And the idea we think is it was a kind of slightly jokey comparison between the flowered dressing gown and the tasseled smoking cap and the satin slippers that resembled the official dress of the Mufti clerics, but that were also what officers quite like to wear when relaxing off duty. Mm. And what about khaki? That's another, I mean, people wear 
uniforms made of khaki. That's another Indian word, isn't it, in origin? It is, yeah. Um, it's from Urdu again. And it, it meant dust-coloured, simply. So it was a very specific colour. Well, as it is, I suppose, these days as well. But um, yeah, that's where it comes from, Urdu. And then again, it comes from kak, meaning dust, and then from Persian as well. So th- these are all very ancient words. What about dungarees? I suggested you'd look good in dungarees. Do you have dungarees? I have a pair. Yeah, I actually bought a pair of dungarees this summer. I kind of thought, no, I'm a bit too old for dungarees now. But actually, I really like them. They're just so comfortable. There's there's something about dungarees. Um, So uh, dungarees, yes, it's simply from the cloth that that they were used for. Again, it's from Indian English, this time from Hindi, uh, dungri. And it was the coarse, really hard-wearing cotton fabric. Um, most of them are, most dungarees, I think, these days are denim, but yeah. Well, speaking of denim, we know denim mm. comes from de Nîmes, the place Nîmes, yeah. N-I with a little hat on it, M-E-S in France. Does Kashmir come from Kashmir? It does, indeed. Ah. Uh, Kashmir, I think we, we covered this in our, in our fabrics episode, which was really fun. I remember it's called Stuff. Yeah, so Kashmir is an early spelling of Kashmir with a K and it's fine, soft wool. And originally it was from the Kashmir goat. Very good. Wonderful. Now, if you want more on words around the home that have Indian influences, go to Apple Subs for extra content. We've got correspondence to deal with from our correspondents around the world. Who have we heard from this week? Well, actually, I mentioned Andrew Steele at the top of this episode, and our very first email is from him, because it was one of the messages that actually inspired us to talk about Indian English. He's asked about the words dicky, meaning the boot of a car, and go down, meaning a warehouse or a storage facility. And he says these are words that are almost exclusively only heard in Indian English. Could I shed some light on their origins? Okay, I've done some investigation, um, investigative work, Andrew, into this, and I'm not sure I've really come up Trumps for you because if you look at Dicky, and this is leaving aside the sense of Dicky in British English, meaning not quite functioning properly or not so not so strong or healthy, that we think comes from Dick, an old name for Richard, and the old saying as queer as Dick's hat band. So that takes us off into a completely different area. But Dicky as a noun can mean a false front to your shirt. Mm-hmm. A folding outside seat at the back of a vehicle, a driver's seat in a carriage, or, as Andrew says in Indian English, the boot of the car, of a car. And each sense, the dictionary says, probably has a different origin. And we don't know what it is, but they do all seem to go back to that pet form of the given name Richard. Now, this is a real mystery because Richard presumably was not a particularly popular name in India. So I feel like I've really failed, Andrew, on both of these because go down is equally, go down actually, I don't think is is actually listed in a lot of English dictionaries. It probably should be. I know in Eastern Asia, it, it is a warehouse. That one we can have a better guess at. We think it goes back to a Tamil word, simply meaning the same thing. But the sort of the trail goes a little bit cold there. So I'm sorry, Andrew, that I can't come up with some fantastic etymological explanation for these. I mean, forgive me for being logical, but if it's a go down, isn't it an abbreviation of, you know, you go down to the cellar, you go down to the warehouse, you go down to wherever we get, you know, go down, put it in the go down. Well, I suppose, I mean, yes, from a literal point of view, you're right. But in Tamil, it, it was very different. It was a kitanku. So I suppose, yeah, I possibly it was as directional and as simple as that, 
But I tell you what I'm going to do, which I didn't do before. I say it's not mentioned in, it's not mentioned in quite a few of the dictionaries that I looked at, but it is in the OED from 1588, where it says it's partly a borrowing from Italian and partly a borrowing from Malay and from Tamil, but it doesn't really explain much more than that. But I can at least give you a, a date. But I think it is simply another example of how, you know, English adapts to particular environments and uh, it obviously is a adapted to the needs of those living in India. And we don't need it here for some reason. We just stick with warehouse. But yeah, an example of the idiosyncrasies of our language across the world. We've got time for one more piece of correspondence. This is from Zach Collins, who writes, I am American in origin, hailing from Ohio, to be more specific, though I now study law in London. I find myself continuously confusing people when I use the phrase catty corner to mean diagonal. I've also heard the phrase catty wampus used in the same way, and no doubt there's some connection. Can you please tell me, and the wonderful listeners, the origin of these phrases, catty corner and catty wampus? Well, it would be lovely if it did have something to do with our feline companions, but it's just another example of how we put something in because it sounds familiar to us. It goes back to the French quatre, uh, meaning four. Um, And because quatre is quite unfamiliar, I suppose, to uh, the English tongue, we snapped it up, but we spelled it cater. Cater, uh, C-A-T-E-R. But of course, we already had a word for four. I mean, it's referring to the kind of four corners of something, but we decided that we'd use cater for words for, for, for playing games and specifically to the four of cards or the four as it appeared on a dice. And if you look at the four spots on dice or the four symbols on a card, they kind of seem to make a, a an X, if you like, which again, then will give you the diagonal side of things. Now, wampus is not actually related. So again, nothing to do with cats. It's such a such a brilliant word. It actually began as catawampus. And that was the word for a bogey, a fierce or imaginary animal. And nowadays, if we do use it, it means a skew or, um, or a rye. Oh. But the first part of the word, perhaps they think, was suggested by other cata words like catamount. Uh, for example, which is a common name in the US for the puma or the cougar. But why it meant a skew, we have absolutely no idea. But at some point, maybe, although etymologically they're distinct, the two meanings kind of converged. And so they both mean slightly askew or at odds or at diagonals. This is why Zach Collins listens to Something Rhymes With Purple. He discovers after all these years that catty corner means diagonal, but catty wampus means askew, and they're quite different. And it's only Susie Dent who can give you this sort of information. And it's only Susie Dent that every week can introduce you to three remarkable words, real words, that she feels need greater currency. What have you got for us this week? Uh, Well, do you remember ages ago, Giles, I told you about the uses of a cover slut? Do you remember? I do indeed. Yeah, so a cover slut is or was something that you would wear over the top of something else in order to hide a stain. And we've all been there. And it uh, made me th- I was talking about cover sluts this this week for reasons I won't go into but it made me think of the simple word maculate which means stained and of course immaculate means without stain oh. but maculate simply means stained and the macula of our eyes are like a little stain and can you use so you can use the word maculate so somebody who is immaculate is looking perfect but if if we come in and say well, you're looking maculate it means you're looking pretty grubby Yes, possibly. Or or your shirt is a little maculate today, um, for which you need a cover slot. And then this is just one for a very frequent 
fear, um, especially on the part of children uh, and some of us adults as well. Nyctophobia, N-Y-C-T-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. Nyctophobia is from the Greek word for night and it means an extreme fear of darkness. Oh. Nyctophobia. So if you're a nyctophobic, you do not like... The pitch black. No, it's a bit eerie, isn't it? Nyctophobia. And finally, blandishment. Blandishment is a manner or the use of words that flatter, that coax, that cajole. So it's kind of false flattery in order to get what you want, blandishment. Blandishments is not that unusual a word, though, isn't it? Is it? Uh, probably not, but I haven't heard it for a very long time. I can imagine it's part of your vocabulary, though. Yeah. Not because you are guilty of it, though. Well, thank you very much. And now, look, I've got, I've got <laughs> some verse for you. Well, it's really, I think, probably more poetic prose. Because I was thinking, oh, I must, this week I must read a, a poem by an Indian poet. Uh, and there are so many of them. I, I love India. We didn't, I didn't ask you if you'd ever been to India. Um, no, I absolutely oh, haven't. Oh, you must. I need to. Can I, I say, know. maybe we should do one of our live podcasts. We're doing lots of live podcasts starting quite soon. Check them out. I don't know where we're going. I know we're going to Bath. I think we're going to Birmingham. We're going to Birmingham. We're going to Cadogan Hall in London. Oh, my goodness. So check, yeah. check out whatever we're going. But maybe we could go to India. My mother being born there, obviously, I visited India a number of times. And how it's changed over the half century that I have been going to India. Remember the first time I went, I just loved it because the streets were so strange. The cars were driving in any direction. You could drive on either side of the road. It was wonderful. You had to slow down for the cattle on the road. You wanted to slow down for the elephants on the road. It was just amazing, teeming with beautiful people. And I go a great deal. And they love words and language. People in India adore words and language. My my books, and I'm sure your books about words and language, are popular there. The radio program I do for the BBC called Just a Minute it has a huge following in India. Millions of people tune into it there. So I hope we have a lot of listeners to Something Rhymes With Purple in India. So please do get in touch with us if you are one of those people. It's purple at somethingelse.com. My Indian poem. I decided to give you some lines by Rabindranath Tagore. Are you familiar with Rabindranath Tagore? No. You're not? I'm not. Oh, no. well, that, I, I'm uh, quite surprised. 1861 to 1941, he was the first Asian poet to win the Nobel Prize for Literature oh, in fantastic. 1913. And again, I was thinking about him recently when writing this childhood memoir of mine, because I went to a school called Beedales in Hampshire, founded by a man called John Badley. And Mr. Badley lived from 1865 to 1967, was a contemporary and a friend of Rabindranath Tagore, who for many people is one of the most famous Indian poets. Anyway, so I can, I can say that I've shaken the hand that shook the hand of the first Asian poet to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. I, you know, one remove, I can give you Tagore. But I'm going to give you, if I may, three poetic lines by Rabindranath Tagore, you cannot cross the sea merely by standing and staring at the water. Faith is the bird that feels the light when the dawn is still dark. The butterfly counts not months, but moments, and has time enough. You cannot cross the sea by standing 
Love that. I mean, your choices of poetry are always so pertinent somehow. They're brilliant. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody for listening to us uh, today. Do please keep getting in touch. Purple at somethingelse.com. Something Rhymes with Purple, as always, is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, and of course, well... I don't know. Do you think he wears pyjamas? I hope so. Well, he's certainly weird or cattywampus. It's Gully!